Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. You know, it's really hard to have an economy without uh, a yardstick to measure stuff against, right? I mean, if you're going to build a house, you need a ruler, right? If you're going to build something, you need standardization. That was the whole point of the Industrial Revolution. Well, in the global economy now, we have no standard for money. That's all fiat money. Referring to other fiat money, it's infinite regress. And as a result, <laughs> we got a lot of problems. Stacy. Right. Uh, we're going to get into one of the biggest stories that has been covered over the past few decades. Not only did we have the, is it inflation or is it deflation? We've also had, is it trade deals or is it immigration or is it automation? What's causing job losses? What's causing the decline in U.S. manufacturing and incomes and the dis deaths of despair? What's causing all that? But speaking of uh, despair, I want to show you all an image that somebody created online. And this is a merge between Max Kaiser and Hillary Clinton and what she might look like had she bought Bitcoin back in 2011 by watching Kaiser Report. It was uh, terrifying and caused me a great despair. <laughs> oh, boy. But here's a big study that looked at China's introduction into the World Trade Organization, whereby it got to compete with the rest of the developed world, but at developing economy tariff rates. So here is what they found in this study. U.S. loses nearly 4 million jobs to China since WTO entry. A newly released study by the Economic Policy Institute reaches a devastating but not surprising conclusion. Globalization has screwed American workers. EPI estimates that Americans sacrificed 3.7 million jobs as a result of the U.S.-China trade deficits since China joined the WTO in 2001, with three-quarters of the losses taking place in manufacturing positions. They also point out that job losses to China have increased since Trump took office. All right, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, the tariffs and trade policies replaced having a yardstick for the global economy like a gold standard, right? There is no gold standard. So you bring China into the global economy based on people's conception of what a trade policy should be, uh, what tariffs should be, right? That's the old Politburo from the Soviet Union trying to figure out how many tractors we should manufacture. And it doesn't work. You need to have a standard unit of money in the globe to have global trade. Once you get rid of that, as now, we have no global standard of money in the world. You will open yourself up to fraud and gaming the system and hopeless collapse. And yes, again, you know, look back at some of our interviews with Dan Collins, and he talks specifically about this, how the how China is still considered a developing nation. It's not considered a developed nation, even though I'm going to go over some of the data to show how they totally outcompete us in even high-valued manufacturing, things like 5G. They are way ahead of us. And I mean, now with the coronavirus, maybe, maybe you know, the likes of our Treasury Secretary and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross or Steve Mnuchin, that they're right that somehow this is all going to send manufacturing back to the U.S. But in terms of the deficit caused by China into the WTO, remember that happened in 2001, just after 
but nobody noticed it then because of, of 9-11, of course. But they've, we've lost far more jobs due to that than to NAFTA. So uh, the growth of the U.S. trade deficit with China between 2001 and 2018 was responsible for the loss of 3.7 million U.S. jobs, including 1.7 million jobs lost since 2008, the first full year of the Great Recession, which technically began at the end of 2007. Three-fourths, or 75.4 percent of the jobs lost between 2001 and 2018 were in manufacturing. 2.8 million manufacturing jobs lost due to the growth in the trade deficit with China. So again, it's the trade deficit which maintains the U.S. dollar as that global unit of account. Without that trade deficit, the U.S. dollar could not be the world's reserve currency. So that trade deficit harms American workers, but it helps Wall Street bankers. So that's why you see the top running away domestically with all the wealth, while the bottom is suffering. Uh, exactly. Uh, and they would be in big trouble if they didn't have the highly fungible, fantastical U.S. dollar and the printing presses and currency exchange rates. Remember, it's infinite regress. Right? So the Chinese yuan references the dollar, references the euro, references the pound, references the Chinese yuan, references the euro. It goes around in this Mobius strip of currency fraud. And the result is, oh, there's a new monarchical class running the world. Oh, how did that happen? Well, it happened by design. And it also shows that the, um, the trade deficit with China has cost jobs in every single of all 50 U.S. states. But in terms of the top 10 hardest hit states, in terms of the amount and the of the percentage, not the absolute number, but the percentage of jobs lost to China, uh, number one is New Hampshire, number two is Oregon, number three is California, and number four is North Carolina. Uh, mostly because North Carolina used to be the number one in the United States. I think it probably still is in terms of U.S. domestic production for furniture. People travel to the state for their furniture it makes because of all the famous trees and stuff here. So China has displaced. This is the fourth hardest hit in terms of percentage of jobs lost in manufacturing to China. Right. And um, the monarchical class is quite happy with that, right? I mean, they're, they're laughing. And they love having absolute power and all the wealth. I mean, that's great for them. Uh, as um, historically, we know that uh, it does end in tears, but uh, that's yet to happen. Um, you know, the propaganda will tell you that you, the ordinary American, must, like, you should fight for the mighty dollar, for the dollar to be to have us this exorbitant privilege. But the, the privilege is reserved clearly for the privileged class, which gets to enjoy the free printed money. Nobody in North Carolina gets to enjoy the free money. Nobody in the rest of America, outside of New York City, outside of San Francisco, enjoys the free money or in, enjoys the trade deals like Hollywood does. So our trade deals that the free money supports is, you know, allowing for the intellectual property monopolies that they get to uh, you know, plunder essentially the rest of the world. But should we go onto a unit of account which is not controlled or, or freely printed by anybody, like a global gold standard, like some sort of um, a bank or that had originally been presented uh, at the Bretton Woods by, uh, at, by Keynes, 
or Bitcoin, something that is not controlled by any one individual that would also basically reduce the stress in the globalization right at the moment. I mean, China, we talk about China, but Germany actually reported the largest ever trade surplus of any nation. So this is also a huge issue in across Europe. Right. Well, look at the 2008 global financial crisis. The banks were bailed out, the creditors. And after that, because of the monopolies that were created, J.P. Morgan and one or two others really own the entire market, interest rates on credit cards have gone up. And interest rates to borrow money to buy back your own stock has gone down. So again, they had always said they had promised with NAFTA, they had promised with China into the WTO, they had promised, and by the way, they being the Clinton administration, really, and all their apologists, they had promised that, don't worry, we're just going to send the drudgery to China, and the Chinese people will somehow never aspire to anything better. And the actual process of manufacturing will somehow, they're not innovators by nature, and they won't learn how to innovate on the factory floor, where all other innovation in history has always happened. But somehow that will magically not happen in this case. Well, they had always said, you know, we're going to have the high value added stuff, things like aeronautics and Boeing, like that sort of stuff we're going to have. Well, obviously, we failed at that. We failed at creating uh, apps that might monitor elections, for example. We can't do any of that. And the evidence from this research shows global trade and advanced technology products, often discussed as a source of comparative advantage for the United States, is instead dominated by China. This broad category of high-end technology products includes the more advanced elements of the computer and electronic parts industry, as well as other sectors such as biotechnology, life sciences, aerospace, and nuclear technology. In 2018, the United States had a $134.6 billion trade deficit in advanced technology products with China, and this deficit was responsible for 32.1% of the total U.S.-China goods trade deficit that year. In contrast, the United States had a $6.5 billion trade surplus in advanced technology products with the rest of the world in 2018. The U.S. balance of trade in advanced technology products declined by $132.7 billion between 2000 and 2018. Right. Well, you know, used to be surrounded by furniture manufacturers, mom and pop furniture companies making furniture that was sold around the world and people were making a good living at it. But, of course, the deal with China meant that all those furniture manufacturing jobs were sent to China. And the people in North Carolina go to Walmart now to buy the cheap slave-made Chinese knockoff for 90 percent less. So, yeah, it's cheaper. But, of course, they lost their job as a result. And it's not just slave-made. It maybe used to be. But there's a huge emerging middle class in China. Their incomes are going up and up and up. And again, look back at our interviews with Dan Collins. He's saying that the middle class there is earning just as much as the middle class here in the United States. They're traveling all around the world, as we see with the coronavirus spreading. They're like the hugest spenders, for example, in France, which relies so much on, on tourists. They're the number one spenders, are the Chinese, number two, Russians, number three, Americans, who spend the most when they go there. So there's a, they're not all just, you know, this notion that, oh, they're just low-value drudgery workers and they're slaves and they're all this stuff. They're actually high-value added. They're creating these jobs. Tesla, where are they building their huge gigafactory sort of thing? 
They're building it in Shanghai. You're right. China outsourced a lot to Vietnam. True. Right. Vietnam became the slave labor. But the fact is, without a real money standard to build an economy upon, like gold, you will always end up with these malinvestments and dislocations and things like the coronavirus. And then finally, in the last 30 seconds here, I want to say um, that the growing trade deficits are also associated with wage losses, not just for manufacturing workers, but for all workers economy-wide who don't have a college degree. So they directly show that it costs $37 billion per year in lost income due to this. And it's not just xenophobia. It could be any country. The fact is you have to have a domestic industrial policy, just like Germany does, in order to maintain the quality of life and the living standards and the innovation within your domestic economy, unless, of course, you have a reserve currency whereby you don't need the working class. And in fact, the working class gaining any uh, sovereignty would actually harm Wall Street and harm their disproportionate uh, share of the economy. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's going to do it for this portion, and we're going to have a lot more coming your way after the break, so don't go away. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to return to our conversation with Randy Voller. He was a former head of the Democratic Party in North Carolina. Randy, welcome back. Great to be here. All righty. Randy, the New Hampshire primaries are today. What do you expect after the Iowa disaster and how the race looks heading into the vote today? I expect uh, Ray Buckley up in New Hampshire and the uh, New Hampshire Democratic Party to uh, learn from what happened in Iowa. I expect it to be run very well, as it always is. And I expect, expect that Bernie Sanders will win. Right. So I, I kind of feel that that's going to be the case, too, because there's such a groundswell. You know, Bernie was... Um, Looking like he had that heart attack. He looked like he was running out of steam. Then AOC came out with a huge endorsement. And his fortunes have just ticked up ever since then. Mm -hmm. Is uh, Tell us about that. Uh, how important is she to his campaign? And what will that mean going forward? I think she's very important. I think she, she's a, a wonderful figure in American politics. Certainly, she threatens certain interests by what she discusses and, and, uh, and, and what she does in Congress. But... You know, bottom line, you know, Bernie was not seen as sympathetic, you know, because he's basically been repeating the same message for 40 years. Then he, you know, had this heart attack and people saw him as human. And I think it, it, it changed their view on him. They saw him as someone that was vulnerable and human and, and more lovable. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's hard. It's funny Fair to enough. say that. But I mean, like, he had a heart attack and he's still there going at it. Right. It, 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 it created a, a, a place for empathy. Okay, fair enough. So um, the Democratic National Convention, the DNC, they seem to be working as much against Bernie as the Republicans. And tell us a little bit about the rule changes they, they, they want or they might implement to stop Sanders at the convention. What are these rule changes uh, that, they, that they want to make? Well, this goes back to the whole issue with the superdelegates, which were originally put in to change how the method of selection was after, you know, Jimmy Carter, where people said, oh, you know, we don't want to have people too liberal. Look, you know, we had the McGovern disaster, then we had Carter elected, then he got beaten by Reagan. It's, it's a lot of these centrist and third way type of people trying to triangulate back and get the candidate that they can control and they feel that there is, quote, moderate. Uh, and, you know, these superdelegates are basically DNC members elected in the states plus uh, 
elected officials that hold the status. I was actually part of the Platform and Resolutions Committee in this state that fed into that process to make that change where the DNC voted that uh, these superdelegates wouldn't vote till the second round. So, so and now I hear they're trying to reverse that, and I hope that's not true. So the Democrats, like, they like the idea of democracy, except when it goes against what they think they want, and then they're willing to change it to make it go to the direction that they want. That doesn't seem very democratic. You know, it reminds me of uh, whenever... Well, I'm, the Republicans do the same thing. you got to remember, no, political the, parties are the, private but the, parties. They don't have these superdelegates. So the question is, though, it no, reminds me... they don't me, have that, but they have, Yeah, they don't. Let me finish. So they, it reminds me of these drivers on the road that they, they want to coexist bumper stickers. Mm. They're the worst drivers. They're constantly weaving in and out and cutting people off because they feel like, well, I'm, I'm virtue signaling. I believe in everyone's beautiful, so I can break the law whenever I want. That's my impression of the Democrats. They like let's all coexist, but I'm I, I can break the law whenever I want because I'm virtuous. Maybe they're just trying to coexist in your lane. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's talk about what this brokered convention means exactly. I don't think we've had one in a while. Uh, you would know better because you're a political historian and uh, you have really studied this stuff. When was the last brokered convention and are we heading for one and what does it mean? Oh God, it's been a while since we've had a, a brokered convention. What does it mean to have one? Well, it, it, first of all, in the new rules, we haven't had one. I mean, because we, we after 1968, you know, they went to these quote reforms, but you know, essentially to, to have a brokered convention is to have all the delegates to not, to not get a majority on the first round, right? You come in this with these, these committed delegates. I'm committed to Sanders or Klobuchar or Warren or Biden, whomever, you know, Buttigieg, and then you vote. But then after the first round, delegates uh, typically can be freed. So, you know, if Bernie were to show up there with, you know, 45% of the delegates, he would still need to get, you know, 50% plus one. So that second round is huge. And this is where the superdelegate situation comes in because, you know, the superdelegates then theoretically could select the nominee, you know, much like it used to be done, as they said, in the smoke-filled rooms, right, uh, where the party elders would meet, you know, and, and talk about this. Look, it happened when FDR was president. He removed, his vice president was removed in 1944, and they, they put Truman on there. And that was part of these decisions that happened in these, quote, smoke-filled rooms, right? All right, I get the fact that a lot of people in the Democratic Party, the neoliberals, like Hillary Clinton, they're afraid of Bernie and ALC because they think they're too far left. But right. why wouldn't they strategize and like, look, this guy could beat Trump, let him beat Trump first, and then we will do our darndest to have, you know, pull away from those far left ideas that he might have and, and, and to, to adopt work together. To work together on a, on a platform that we can all agree on, right? You have to win first. Right. I don't understand why the Democrats think that the only way they're going to get their agenda through is by strategically losing to Trump. How does... I don't get that. Well, what's very strange about this whole discussion is nobody ever says somebody's too far right. So you never hear this commentary come out like, ooh, they're running someone that's too reactionary or too right. It always seems as if the third-way folks or the hand-ringers in the party are chasing that middle. The only thing in the middle in Texas, for instance, are dead armadillos. I mean, being in the middle is not really a great safe place to be. The only fish that swim with the tide are dead fish. Exactly. Or with so the I mean, current. So it's like, you can run as right as you want, and you often hear people like, oh, I'm in the primary, I'm running to the right of my opponent so I can beat him, right? 
Well, you know what? That whole left lane is wide open, and there's all kinds of policy in that left lane that the people actually like. When you poll it, you know, people want good health care. They want clean water. They want clean air. They want to have affordable education. It's like all of this stuff is vastly popular. Right. Stick your slag in the ground. And just and this is what we want. It. And try to get there. Right. It's not going to happen. You're not going to wake up the next day, and it's going to be everyone's wearing a Mao outfit. Marching in lockstep, eating no, you know, black bread, right? I mean, it's going to take a political process. There's still the Constitution. It's like the Democrats don't even, it's like none of them have read the Constitution. I mean, exactly. One of the weirdest arguments about the student debt is if we were to forgive the debt and, you know, have free education, all of these people would suddenly be able to buy products that we sell and buy baby boomers properties, by the way, because suddenly they could afford it. You'd have this debt released from their credit report. Right. You know, another really bad look for the Democrats is to just like let Michael Bloomberg buy his way in. You know, My Michael Moore, you know, he was crying recently on, in, in, on the stage, just like literally reduced to a puddle of tears that the D DNC would betray their supporters so egregiously by just letting Bloomberg buy his way in, change the rules. And that's not a good look if they're trying to beat this opportunistic billionaire by kowtowing to an opportunistic billionaire, that doesn't make sense either, Randy. Well, it seems like a, a very interesting Greek tragedy. But I mean, isn't it? Isn't this a great moment for us, though? We have Bernie and you have Elizabeth Warren talking about, you know, billionaire taxes, wealth taxes, talking about, you know, do we need to have billionaires in our society? Really raising that issue, and then we have billionaires who, you know, support the Democratic Party entering it. So, I mean, this really raises the issue for the voters. I mean, do you want somebody to basically buy their way in? Isn't that the great debate in our country? Buying your way into the best schools, buying your way into the neighborhoods, buying your way in. Why are we allowing this? I mean, right now, I heard he has 600 people on the ground in California, all paid. 150 uh, in North Carolina. Right, the catered lunches, sushi, best in, hotels, right? right? He's hired. I mean, I'm not uh, blaming uh, Michael Bloomberg. I'm just saying it's odd that we're doing this, and for them to change the rules to accommodate them really questions, you know, their seriousness and the fact that other people played by the rules and had to get out of the race. Julian Castro, for one, right, a good Hispanic candidate, member of the cabinet for Obama. You know, our mayor of Newark, you know, Cory Booker, he's gone. Kamala Harris, they all played by the rules. They're gone. Beto. All right, let's talk about the uh, China trade. China trade, trade with China. Now, North Carolina is the fourth most impacted state in terms of percentage of overall jobs lost. You know, they had this big furniture industry here because it's, right. it's nothing but trees. The Tar Heel State, that Lots comes from trees. trees, nothing but trees. What do you think a president needs to offer North Carolina to win North Carolina? Well, North Carolina is also a very complicated state because it's a state of no real large municipalities, you know, not, not like other states that have a Chicago, New York, you know, Charlotte and Raleigh are big, but you have a lot of small towns and a lot of communities are like over 540 municipalities, give or take. And so, you know, and you've got this quite diverse state in terms of race and a, and a burgeoning a Hispanic class here. I mean, he's going to have to come in here and say, uh, well, you know, North Carolina, you know, I've, I feel your pain, especially east of 95, your, your, your wages are flat. You know, I have a strategy for helping. I mean, certainly our farmers have been impacted by his policies. You know, they're losing money. All right. So agriculture is huge. Agriculture is huge. Agriculture is huge. This is a, uh, and the, the, I see a lot more furniture. You know, they've got a lot of hipsters moving in here. Why doesn't he just appeal to the hipsters and say, look, it's sunny most of the year. 
We've got great coffee shops. We, we'll, we'll charge $8 for a cup of coffee, no problem. And they're popping up everywhere. And the Raleigh is a huge, uh, the research triangle. I don't know. I mean, this is a great place. What's his argument going to be to appeal to the hipsters? I, I'm not really sure that Trump and his kind of 1980s ways, you know, suckled at the teeter Roy Cohn really appeal to hipsters. Right. It so the Democrats should win North Carolina this time instead of losing it like they did last time. And well, they, they he could... lost it. Roy Cooper won it. It was kind of a draw. But, I mean, we have a U.S. Senate race, too. So this is going to be one of the most contested races because if Tom Tillis loses, you know, the balance in the Senate's there. So really? it's a very good question. Yeah, what's going to happen? I, I suspect a lot of money will be spent in North Carolina. Who's Tom Tillis? What, what Tom, are these issues? Who, what? Tom Tillis is the U.S. senator, and he's pretty much been a supporter of Donald Trump. And if McConnell wants to hold the Senate, he has to hold North Carolina, like he has to hold Colorado, he has to hold Arizona. So if he loses Tom Tillis, if Cal Cunningham or whoever our nominee is, he could lose control of the Senate. And then, you know, Trump, if he were president in a second term, would have a different situation. Right. Well, that makes sense. That's good strategy. And we'll open a coffee shop. We'll open a coffee Randy shop. Randy and Max's coffee shop. I hear you. Right in Raleigh. Right in Raleigh. We charge eight bucks for a cup of coffee. That's what the higher. It's a Veblen good. The higher I mean, you charge. I mean, we're going to go higher than than five bucks. Starbucks. Oh yeah, much higher. That's how you make money. All I right, we got to go. Thanks for being on the Kaiser Report. Great to be here. That's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacy Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Randy Voller. Yes, if you want to reach us at uh, Twitter, uh, you just look at Kaiser Report, and I'm at Real Max Kaiser on Twitter. Until next time, bye, y'all. At American University, we don't just hope for change. We create it. We don't just dream of a better world. We make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.